Hey everyone, this is Taylor Halverson from Book of Mormon Central. We've had a lot of requests to add our weekly Come Follow Me videos with myself and Tyler Griffin to our podcast. We are very excited to do this. However, just know that we use a lot of visuals in our videos. So if you ever want to see the visuals, check out Book of Mormon Central on YouTube. We hope you enjoy. I'm Taylor. And I'm Tyler. This is Come Follow Me Insights from Book of Mormon Central. Lots of extra great resources are found on our Scripture Plus app and online at bookofmormoncentral.org. Today, Mosiah chapters 25 to 28. One of the central features of today's Scripture block is the conversion of Alma the Younger and the four sons of Mosiah, Ammon, Aaron, Omner, and Himni. Uh, to set the stage for that, kind of as an, uh, an overview for, for the main element that we're going to cover in this particular Insight episode, I want to share with you a, uh, a nursery rhyme. Now, this isn't a particularly insightful or entertaining nursery rhyme. In fact, when I was a kid I used to think it was really dumb. So here you go. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. <laughs> all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. There you go. There's the nursery rhyme. So all growing up, here's me thinking, that's a dumb rhyme, like most other nursery rhymes are, didn't, didn't have a lot of meaning to me, until one day when I was uh, sitting in a fireside setting listening to Elder Von J. Featherstone and he proposed a little, a little tweak to this nursery rhyme, and since that day, this has become my favorite of all the nursery rhymes. Here's his version of it. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again but the king could, and the king would, and the king will. Brothers and sisters, as we jump in, uh, we wanted to begin with this idea that we live in a fallen world. We live in mortal, fallen tabernacles of clay. We have opposition in all things. We have opposition to us as well. And, and life is hard, and there are a lot of us and a lot of our loved ones who are struggling, who experience great falls, and the reality is, is none of us can put, us back, put ourselves back together or put our children back together, our grandchildren, our, our neighbors, our friends, our ward members, but the king can and the king will. And that is, to, to us, that is kind of the central message of the, uh, the scripture block this week is even when all hope seems lost, there's still hope in Christ and that's our only, only chance. Now, let's begin. Go back with us to uh, Mosiah chapter 25 and in here, to, to make sense and to get everybody up to speed and onto the same page, keep in mind, Mormon is, as the editor here, he's trying to pull everything together and make sense of what's happened with these different groups of people as we now prepare to move forward into the rest of the narrative. So, just to keep things straight, we brought Limhi's group back to Zarahemla, and following that we brought Alma's group back to Zarahemla, and he describes in, in chapter 25, those first, you know, five, six, all the way down to verse 13, the different groups of people. In Zarahemla, we have the Mulekites. These are descendants of Mulek, the people of Zarahemla. We have the Nephites with King Mosiah as their leader, and it was from this group that these two different groups of people had left 80 years in the past and have now rejoined, so they're now combined here. And then Mormon gives us some demographic information that is kind of helpful as we move forward into this book to, to make sense of the lay of the land and the different uh, 
populations. He says, look, the Mulekites are bigger in number than the Nephites. It's a smaller group. Even when you add Alma and Limhi's group in, the Nephites are still outnumbered by the Mulekites. But then he says, you have the Lamanites that outnumber all of them combined by more than double. So the Lamanite population is much, much bigger than the combined population in Zarahemla, even after you add all these in. Here's the interesting point to all of this this random uh, number stuff. The smallest group of all, these, these Nephites, that they have the ruling power. They have the record-keeping. They seem to be the literate portion of the population. It's almost as if he who rules the pen rules history and rules the governing of the people in in a lot of ways. Um, Look at verse – so you're in chapter 25 – look at verse 13. And now all the people of Zarahemla were numbered with the Nephites, and this because the kingdom had been conferred upon none but those who were descendants of Nephi. So Nephi's children and descendants are the kings. Can you see the interesting setup from a from a biblical perspective here? Because all of these all of these people came out of the lands of the Bible in 600 BC, and in the Mulekites uh, probably around right before the conquest of Babylon, so 587, 586, when the siege is taking place, sometime uh, Mulek, the son of Zedekiah, leaves. Here's the irony. You ready? Mulek is the son of Zedekiah, who was the king of Jerusalem. He's from the tribe of Judah. The tribe of Judah, they're the kings for the most part in this time period of of, uh, ancient Israel. The Nephites, they come from the tribe of Manasseh. Manasseh is not a kingly tribe, they're not a priestly tribe, they're none of that. And now all of a sudden, all the priests, the prophets, the kings, the leadership, it's all coming from this lesser tribe, so to speak. Can you see how later on in the Book of Mormon there could be um, some disputations and dissensions among the people of the Nephites because of a natural break that's that already exists before we even get underway. We don't know this for sure, so this is not doctrine, uh, but there's at least a a chance that the kingmen later on in the Book of Mormon are going to be saying, hey, we're of noble birth. What are you Nephites doing on the throne? We, we or as the chief judges, we want to be the king because we have the right to the kingship in in the law of Moses, under the House of Israel framework, we, we should be the ones in charge. What, what's going on? So you can, and we don't know if that's what's going on for sure, but at least that strong possibility is happening here. And Mormon is setting up this this dynamic with all these different groups of people, saying, "This is hard for these leaders to try to pull these people together and get them to become one and unified." And anybody who's worked with with disparate groups and trying to work on unity can can say amen to that. So what Tyler's pointing out is actually really important for us. The Book of Mormon was not written as a political text. It wasn't written as a demographic or a geographical text. Those details are in there. Mormon wrote this to lead us to Jesus Christ. We just want to make sure we always remind ourselves of that. So it's interesting, the Mulekites um, in ancient Hebrew, uh, and even Hebrew today, the base word the basic word for king is based on these three letters, MLK, and depending on how the vowels work will change the definition a bit, but always has to do with kingship. So the word mulek means uh, little king or a prince, and mulek was the little king or the son or the prince of Zedekiah. The word melek itself just means king, and mamlaka means kingdom. Notice that in the Book of Alma, you have several groups that are fighting to become kings. You have a group called the Amlicites. 
notice that it seems that the Hebrew word for king is right in the middle of their name. The word kingmen could simply be the English translation of the word Amlicites, or even the word Amlicites might be a variation of this. And then there's an interesting one. One of the worst Nephite apostates and defectors who wanted kingship, and he didn't want anyone to be king but himself. He took over the Lamanites and then brought the Lamanites to fight the Nephites, and there's like 40 chapters of warfare kind of started by this guy. And his name is Amalekiah. And it seems that he has in the base of his name the word Melek, or king. So there's been proposals by those who study these ancient languages that these names in the Book of Mormon are representing what these people care about. And as, Nephi, as, as, as Tyler has laid out, I think of you as Nephi, as Tyler has laid out, this may have been baked into the Nephite political order because of the descendancy of these people. That the people, the Mulekites, like, we should be the king because we're the descendants of Zedekiah who'd be the king and the descendants of Judah. Even the Lamanites, Laman and Lemuel were mad at Nephi because he took rulership. So one of the big driving forces going on in the narrative of the Book of Mormon is who's to be the king? And this is answered in the Book of Mormon. Jacob, the brother of Nephi, says, the Lord God is the king. That is, uh, that is profound for all of us to, to not only see in the Book of Mormon but in our own life that regardless of what's going on, wherever you live, whatever the, the situation you're in, look to Christ as, as the ultimate king for us. Okay, so he's, he's setting up other details about how Alma now becomes the head of the church the first time where we actually establish widespread this church, and he tells you that he had seven different churches, but they were all one church, kind of like stakes or wards, however you want to look at that. So for the first time we're looking at this structure in the Book of Mormon of how God is now spreading his gospel through a, a, an official organization led by Christ through Alma, his prophet. Now, if you turn over to chapter 26, uh, we're, we're introduced to a very, very powerful concept when it comes to parenting and leading in the, uh, in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So it's been a few years since King Benjamin gave his, his landmark address on the tower. And look at how he describes the situation. What we're going to look for in chapter 26 at the beginning here is words that precede not. And watch the, watch the progression of, of ideas as they unfold here. Look at verse 1. Now it came to pass that there were many of the rising generation that could not understand the words of King Benjamin. Why? Because they were little children at the time that he spake them. And so notice, they did not believe in the tradition of their fathers. Because they couldn't understand King Benjamin's words, they didn't believe them. So we don't know the full detail here of, of how little or how much their parents instilled the words of King Benjamin. We just know that there's an issue going on. Look at verse 2. They did not believe what had been said concerning the resurrection of the dead, neither did they believe concerning the coming of Christ. Couldn't understand it, didn't believe, verse 2 repeats, did not believe. Now look at verse 3. And now because of their unbelief, they could not understand the word of God. Brothers and sisters, there's a difference between that could not and that could not. They were – they didn't really have a choice when they were little children about being able to focus on and understand the words of the, the prophet king upon the tower. They, they were too young, but because they chose then not to engage with those words and understand them now that they're of age where they could 
have understood them and had the Holy Ghost uh, verify them. Now you'll notice they could not understand the word of God and their hearts were hardened. It's as if they've allowed their spirit to be filled with darkness rather than light, with deception rather than truth. So they couldn't understand. Somebody would come and talk to them about the gospel, they couldn't understand it. Verse 4, they would not be baptized, neither would they join the church, and they were a separate people as to their faith and remain so ever after, even in their carnal and sinful state, for they would not call upon the name of the Lord their God. So you're noticing what happens often is this, this difficult – it's not a progression, it's a digression from circumstances that you have no control over, but eventually once your agency kicks in, if you don't use it appropriately, it leads to further and further would-nots and could-nots that will prevent you from walking in the light. So it's a powerful principle to consider as we move forward as individual and, uh, individuals and as families. Um, nobody is better equipped to teach these principles than parents in a home. No, no bishop and no leader, no teacher in a church or a, a, a religious education setting is going to be better at helping to prevent this from happening than mom and dad at home. You don't have to have a PhD or a, a graduate degree in any kind of biblical studies to be able to know what heaven wants done with heaven's child that's been given to you as parents or, or as grandparents. So bless you in that effort. Now notice the shift here. Look at verse 8. King Mosiah had given Alma the authority over the church, and it came to pass that Alma did not know concerning them. The them is these people who are doing all these bad things. So here's Alma, he's the head of the church, and he had no idea what to do concerning them. But there were many witnesses against them. Now there had not any such thing happened before in the church. Therefore Alma was troubled in his spirit, and he caused that they should be brought before the king. Alma's troubled. He's never seen this situation before in his life. Brothers and sisters, there's a, there's a phenomenon in our church where sometimes we get this idea that when God calls a prophet or prophets, that when they're, when they're picked as a prophet, then he now gives them all knowledge and all ability and they're, they're going to be perfect. The reality is, is when God calls prophets, he – I love how how President uh, Boyd K. Packer worded this. He said, we're just normal people who have been called to do extraordinary things. And on another occasion, one of my favorite stories um, along these lines is one that was told by Elder Neil L. Anderson when uh, in general conference he shared one of his first – it may have even been his first experience as a general authority and the person he was assigned to go with was President Packer, and he said that President Packer stood up in one of these settings and said to this congregation, he said, I know who I am. Now most of us would sit there and think he's going to say, I am an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, but he didn't say that. President Packer said, I am a nobody. And then Elder Anderson said, President Packer turned to him and said, and Elder Anderson, you're a nobody too, and don't you ever forget it. <laughs> Welcome to the apostleship. To me, it's refreshing when you hear stuff like that and when you see stuff like this. It, it makes my raising my hand to sustain the prophets, seers and revelators, the leaders of the church, it makes it more meaningful to realize that this sustaining hand isn't to say, yes, I expect them to be absolutely perfect and to never get anything wrong ever, ever, ever. It's going to be flawless. But rather to realize there are some things that we're going to experience as a group collectively that are troubling and they don't have all the answers just instantaneously. Now, there are times when they come for specific needs, 
but the sustaining hand from the from the saints at large is to say we've got your back we'll support you we're in this together let's work through this ongoing restoration as god reveals things line upon line precept upon precept here a little there a little and if we get revelation that changes something that's been done in the church a certain way for decades wonderful hallelujah right let's move forward and i love that here where you see you see this process unfolding with alma wrestling with god to say what do we need to do with this problem that i've never never experienced before let's let's look closely at verse 13 now the spirit of alma was again troubled and he went and inquired of the lord what he should do concerning this matter for he feared that he should do wrong in the sight of god you'll notice there's a beautiful little truth in there prophets aren't called to be popular among people they're not trying to get the most likes or the most followers in in a social media context they want to be right with god they want to let this be the church of jesus christ not the church of men not the church of public opinion not the church of the latest uh, social media craze to to sweep through the world and so that's their concern and i hope we can we can sustain better than we ever have before as a collective group a body of saints the prophets, seers, and revelators, as we know that they're on their knees pleading to know God's will, knowing what he would, would have taught to us, and let's, let's work through this process of an ongoing restoration together. It's beautiful. These are, these are our days. This is our time to be here and uh, experience these things that we're watching. Now, something fun for you to do in your scriptures here is in chapter 26, you can mark in whatever way works for you, and if you don't want to mark it, that's totally fine, but from verse 15 through 32. Verse 15 through 32 is the first edition of the Church Handbook of Instructions in the Book of Mormon, because Alma, for the first time, has has organized things into these church uh, hierarchical structures, and he's going to the Lord with these formal problems, and God is starting to, to give that specific guidance and direction. So if you look at these verses in chapter 26, you you can pay really close attention to the personal pronouns. It would be a fascinating exercise for some of you to pause and pause the video and just work your way through all of these verses, 15 through 32, and mark all of the I, my, me, mine. By the time you get done with these verses, there should be no question in anybody's mind whose church this is. He isn't saying, Alma, in your church you should do this. He never once does that. It's all about Jesus. It's his church, and he's saying, here's what I want done in my church at this time. Now, there's, there's huge applicability to not just the church, but if you can see your life as an individual or your family in this same light to say, we don't, we don't want I don't want my life to be in isolation of the Savior. I actually want to give my life to him to the greatest degree I can so that he can guide it, so that it, it can become his, not because he's taken it from me, but because I've given it to him. Uh, it was Elder Neely Maxwell who said that when we surrender our will and surrender our soul, our agency basically, it's the only total surrender that results in a complete victory, and uh, that is true at whatever level we're able to put our life or our, our offering on the altar and give it to him. I love this, Tyler. Let's, uh, let me grab both those pens. So building off of this, I encourage you to look at the early verses here, 15, 16, 17, 18, actually look throughout these verses 
for the word blessed or blessed or bless. And it turns out, if you go back to Matthew chapter 5, we have what are called the Beatitudes. Jesus, as the new Moses, has gotten onto a mountain to deliver the higher law that defines for us the covenant path of living. And he gives people a whole series of blessings. And in Latin, uh, the word beatus actually means to be blessed. And so in some ways we have beatitudes here. And so you can circle all the ways, all the times you see the word bless or blessed, and you see all the power inherent in God's love of what he wants to offer those who take his name upon them. And that's the other word I want you to look at. As you look through these verses, look at the use of the word name. It's very interesting. Verse 18, blessed is this people who are willing to bear my name. For in my name shall they be called and they are mine. So this ties right back into the baptismal covenant that Alma delivered to the people at the waters of Mormon. And there's actually a lot of power in naming. It turns out if we return back to the Old Testament to Genesis, when Adam was created, God asked Adam to name everything in creation. And I use this as an example because naming is power and responsibility. When you have a name, you have power and responsibility and authority. And it's interesting that what God truly wants is to put his name on us. He wants to be responsible for us. He wants to have power for us and authority on our behalf. Now, of course, he already has all those things, but we can only fully and truly access it if we're willing to allow him to name us. And I want you to think about in our world today, think about how the naming that happens the branding, the marketing. Um, I happen to be wearing some shoes that are brand name. And so I'm actually representing some company right now. I'm not gonna put those shoes on camera because they actually aren't paying me to do this. But the real name that I should try to be bearing is the name of Jesus Christ. But our world today tries to insert themselves in the work of God and name us with their brand, with their stories, with their purposes. Now, I'm not saying that it's actually a bad thing that businesses are out there doing their work, but ultimately we want to think about the person who ultimately defines who we are and gives us power and authority is Jesus. And as we join with him in his church, we get his name. And as we move on to the next life and we are admitted into his presence, it's because we are like him and we have his name. If you look at this taking his name, bearing my name upon us that, that starts off this section, this priesthood handbook of instructions, then he tells you that once you do that, now you, you don't just sit back and take his name, but you go forth and serve, you become more like him. So you look at what missionaries do, they literally take his name and put it upon them outwardly. It's sitting right here over their heart, their name combined with the, the name of Jesus Christ on their heart. My son Jacob, who we just got home from his mission in, in uh, Ecuador last week, when he was released, he shared something with us where he said um, for, for his full-time missionary service, he was given the opportunity to wear the name of Christ over his heart, and now that he's released, the invitation is for the name of Christ to be written forever and ever and ever in his heart, and for him to go forth and serve in, uh, in beautiful ways as he emulates the, the life of the Savior, so to speak, in trying to become more like him. In that process, individually as well as collectively as a group, we're going to struggle at times. We're going to get some things wrong and it's okay as long as we learn from it and we grow and repent and move forward. Look at verse 30, yea, and as often as my people will repent, will I forgive them their trespasses against me? and you shall also forgive one another your trespasses. 
For verily I say unto you, he that forgiveth not his neighbor's trespasses, when he says that he repents, the same hath brought himself under condemnation. So there's another invitation for us to become more like Jesus. If you, if you want to be more like the Savior, then exercise the principle of mercy. It was Joseph Smith in his journal who once wrote, ever keep in exercise the principle of mercy, and he's, he went on to say, even if we would get to the point where we could forgive our brother before he asks for forgiveness, Joseph said, our Heavenly Father would be equally as merciful to us. If you want to be more like Jesus, be willing to forgive others, be willing to forgive yourself, and continually repent as oft as you as you have struggled and trespassed against him. That's a beautiful promise. Now, let's go into the, the, the big chapter where you see major change, chapter 27. This is Alma and uh, the four sons of Mosiah. Now, notice a trend here. You have Alma, we don't call him this, but Alma the Elder, uh, it, it never calls him that in the scriptures. Then you get Alma's son, we call him Alma the Younger. So here you have the father, the prophet, he is doing everything he can to build up faith and build up the church and spread the gospel, and it's his own son who, who happens to be one of the biggest enemies of that process of what he's trying to do. Ironically, in his youth, he struggled. As a, one of the priests of King Noah, he had a pretty rough period of time in his life that caused him some sore repentance. So it's interesting how he looks at the struggles of his son and how he, he pleads with God in behalf of his son. His past experience has to shape his parenting experience here, and ironically, nearly the same thing, the same pattern is going to occur in a future lesson when Alma the Younger is going to be dealing with a son during a mission who falls into some pretty serious transgression, and it's just fascinating to see the kind, gentle repentance for them is not this punitive, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make sure that justice comes hammered down onto your head, rather, let me help you see who God is, who you are, what you've done here to sever that relationship and how you can restore that. So you see a, a beautiful pattern played out here. And I wonder <clears throat> if there's also a message in the meaning of the name Alma. In Hebrew, Alma means young man. And all these stories are about young people who have wandered but eventually found their way back. And isn't that the whole plan of salvation? We're sent down to this earth, we're young, and we make a bunch of mistakes, and God loves us and has provided a pathway that we can return to him. And these stories all indicate that all of us, at some point in our young lives, in our it doesn't mean that we're like age young, but just even spiritually young lives, we're all developing, that like Alma the Elder, Alma the Younger, and even Corianton, if we've made mistakes, if we've had family members have made mistakes, just have faith. Keep pursuing that path of peace that God has laid out, and like these young men, we too can find salvation. Now, there's a, there is a false notion that is pretty enticing in the world, and it's this idea that, darn it, why did I have to be born in the church? Why, why couldn't I have lived out in the world and enjoy all of the things of the world and then maybe at, you know, I don't know, age 80, find the missionaries, be taught the gospel, accept the gospel, get baptized, and a year later go to the temple, and then maybe a year after that, uh, die. So then I get the best of both worlds, right? I, I can enjoy life and then be saved in the end. If Alma or Alma the Younger were standing here today, 
I don't think, I don't believe for a moment that either of them would say, ha, it was awesome. We got to enjoy all of the pleasures of the world and of the flesh, and it was, it was delightful, and then afterwards, yeah, then, then we found the gospel and got on the covenant path, and now we're going to be saved. It's all good. I don't think they would say that. It's a lie. It's a major deception to think that keeping the commandments or being on the covenant path is somehow the slog, the hard, the miserable life, and we look at all the the fun that's going on out there thinking, oh yeah, but we can't have any fun because we've got to be covenant-keeping members of this church. Brothers and sisters, this is a plan of happiness. The Lord's plan is a plan of peace. It's, it's not a, a plan of being yoked down with the, the, the bondage that the world offers us through these fleeting pleasures that quickly pass and leave behind a wake of sore repentance. Uh, it is not the ideal to get to the end of a life of sin and raucous living and then find the gospel. Now, it's always a wonderful thing when anybody finds the gospel, don't get me wrong, that's not what I'm trying to say. Um, my, my wife's grandmother, uh, she got baptized at age 89 and uh, went to the temple for the first time at age 90, and on one occasion I was talking to her, my wife and I were talking to her, and she didn't make a big deal of it, but we were asking her how she felt about, about her newfound faith. Uh, my mother-in-law, being an only child, had found the gospel years earlier, and now here was her mother, who at age 90, 91, said very gently, very kindly, I wish, I wish I would have found this gospel earlier. I wish I would have found all of these things when I was younger, when I could have enjoyed what this, what this church and this gospel offer to me before I was this old. Um, on that foundation, here's Alma the Younger. He's going around living, living it up, so to speak, in a worldly context. His parents and many of the members of the church are fasting and praying for him when God sends a very, very unique answer to that prayer. He uh, sends the angel to visit these, uh, these boys, Alma, the son of Alma, who's the head of the church, and Ammon, Aaron, Omner, and Himni, who are the four sons of the king, King Mosiah. So your, your rising generation of the, the biggest leaders in the Nephite civilization are our biggest problem. So the angel comes to them, and you'll notice how the angel addresses them. Pay close attention as you read in chapter 27 the words of the angel and how he's validating the faith and the prayers of the, the righteous saints at that time, as well as how he is validating the agency of Ammon, Aaron, Omner, and Himni, and especially Alma. Notice verse uh, 16, now I say unto thee, go and remember the captivity of thy fathers in the land of Helaman, in the land of Nephi, and remember how great things he has done for them, for they were in bondage and he has delivered them. Brothers and sisters, I don't think he's just saying, go and read the history books of your family to know everything that happened to them so you can uh, have great conversations at family reunions. I think what he might be saying here is, your family has had serious struggles with bondage in the past. Take home message, Alma, you have serious struggles with bondage right now. God released your family from bondage, he'll release you from bondage if you're willing. Look at this. Now I say unto thee, Alma, go thy way and seek to destroy the church no more that their prayers may be answered, and this even if thou wilt of thyself be cast off. If you want to choose to be cast off, that's fine, but stop fighting against the work of God. And uh, then Alma fell to the earth, and there's this huge change that's taking place, and we're going to cover that in depth 
when we get to Alma chapter 36, when he's recounting the, the inside story of what's occurring during those three days. He gives you a little flavor of it here, and uh, when he wakes up in verse 24, 25, all the way down through verse uh, 31, beautiful, his, his final statement uh, in verse 29, my soul hath been redeemed from the gall of bitterness and the bonds of iniquity. I was in the darkest abyss, but now I behold the marvelous light of God. My soul was racked with eternal torment, but I am snatched and my soul is pained no more. And we're going to talk a lot more about this. Now, bringing this home to the latter days, we are aware of the fact that there are many, many families today who have parents, grandparents, siblings, aunts and uncles who who pour their heart out to God in behalf of loved ones who are struggling, who have, who have either left the faith or left the church or have strayed from their own families, and it's painful. It's painful to watch knowing that wickedness never was happiness, and there won't be any, any lasting joy for these people in that lifestyle. And so we pray for miracles. Most of the time you're going to find that uh, as we look through history <clears throat> that the process of change is just that, it's a process, it's not an event usually. In this case, it's a glorious exception, it's an event. Uh, sometimes God will, will work with us on this path of once, once a loved one has hit rock bottom, then they'll have experiences that will bring them out, but occasionally there will be these, these defining events, these defining moments that, that bring them uh, back in a much, much quicker, quicker way. I want to just share a, an experience like this um, that my, my dear friend, my mentor, uh, my former bishop that I served with when we lived in Brigham City, Ron Franson, shared with me on multiple occasions and, and with, with different congregations. I, I love this experience. Um, it was somebody that he knew whose father, named Brother Jennings, lived in a small town in, in central Utah many, many years ago, back uh, early 1900s, and uh, Brother Jennings was not active in the church. He smoked, he drank, he, he just spent his time providing for the needs of his family in, in rural Utah back in that day. But at that time, he had the calling as the branch financial clerk. So his son remembers him every Sunday sitting in the uh, front room with the donations of the church laid out in front of him that the bishop had dropped off earlier, and a ledger, he would be keeping track of it with a cup of coffee and a, and a cigarette ashtray smoking right there as he's balancing the, uh, the records of the church, the finances of the church. The day came when that little branch was big enough that it was now going to be turned into a ward, and the stake president called a uh, bishop and then asked that bishop to prayerfully consider who his counselors should be. When that bishop came to the stake president and gave two names, one of the names was Brother Jennings. The stake president said, uh, this doesn't work, and the bishop said, I know, but that's the name that keeps coming to mind. So the stake president said, okay, I'll extend the call, let's see what happens. Now you can picture this moment, I, I don't know, because you're getting this story now third, fourth hand, I don't know the exact order of the wording, but it went something like this, as, as uh, Bishop Franson told it that the stake president informed him that this little branch was going to be turned into a ward. Brother Jennings was excited. He told him who the new bishop was going to be. He said, oh, wonderful, he's a good man. This will be a good blessing for these people. And then the stake president informed him, and Bishop so-and-so has asked that you be his counsel, one of his counselors, at which point Brother Jennings probably chuckled. <laughs> 
oh, president, you don't understand. I, I can't be his counselor because I smoke, I drink, I don't pay my tithing, and I don't go to church. At which point a very, very inspired stake president chuckled back and said, oh no, Brother Jennings, it's you who are mistaken. You see, you used to smoke, you used to drink, you used to not pay your tithing, and you used to not go to church. And in a moment of silence, a heart was literally touched and changed. And Brother Jennings in that moment said, you're right, I don't drink and I don't smoke and I am a full tithe payer and I will take that calling. And he fulfilled that faithfully and was faithful to the end of his life. It doesn't mean he didn't face temptations. It doesn't mean that he didn't have struggles. It just means that he got on the covenant path in a moment. Now, this doesn't happen for most people. I get that. I understand that. But sometimes, brothers and sisters, we stretch out our gospel improvement longer than it needs to be because we assume that God can't change our heart in, in moments of time when in fact he can. He can if we'll have faith and if we'll pray not just for ourselves but for our loved ones, for experiences to occur, to occur where these mighty changes of heart can, can come to pass. To finish off today's lesson in chapter 28, as you study this, notice, notice the contrast that we've come from. Ammon, Aaron, Omner, and Himni, so 27 is mostly about Alma, 28 is mostly about the four sons of Mosiah. We've seen Alma's huge change of heart. Well, the four sons of Mosiah had a major change of heart too. These four young men, or however old they are, they're heirs to the Nephite throne. They could have a life of ease and comfort and power, and it's it, they were born into this. But you'll notice the change of heart that they've had where they, they are at the point where they can't imagine what it would be like to have anyone um, endure torment. Look at chapter 28, verse 3. Now, they were desirous that salvation should be declared to every creature, for they could not bear that any human soul should perish. Yea, even the very thought that any soul should endure endless torment did cause them to quake and tremble, and thus did the Spirit of the Lord work upon them, and they were the very vilest of sinners. And the Lord saw fit in his infinite mercy to spare them. From heaven's perspective, they, they go from the very vilest of sinners to now saying, we want to go and serve a mission, and they pick the most awful place that a Nephite could pick, which is we want to go serve among the Lamanites. We want to go serve in a place where they would rather kill us than, than uh, listen to us uh, because they can't bear the thought of these people suffering eternally what they've experienced in a very short period of, of torment through their repenting that they've uh, experienced. And so Mosiah, their father, the king, is going to have to get heaven's direction on this. And the, my favorite part of this is this, this mission that they're going on makes no logical sense but the Spirit of the Lord inspired it, and then the Spirit of the Lord inspires King Mosiah to say, absolutely, let your boys go. I will protect them. And for those of you who have had missionary children or grandchildren or relatives or close friends in places or in situations where they were in harm's way, you know somewhat of that feeling of saying, Lord, I'm, I'm giving my son into your hands. I'll never forget the day we sent our first son, Benjamin, our oldest, on his mission to Guatemala, and he was going to go to the Guatemala MTC, so my wife and I took him to the airport at Salt Lake uh, International. And we watched as he went through the line of TSA, and 
finished with all of that and headed out to, to go towards his gate. And here's our boy that we've raised as he uh, clears that process and before he turns to go out of sight, he turned around and waved at us. And here my wife and I waving back at him. And there was a deep sense of, uh, of love for that boy and for our Heavenly Father who entrusted that boy into our care. And it literally felt like we were putting him back in the hands of the Lord to say, he's yours. He was yours long before he was ours. We know we're not losing him, but we're giving him back to you. Uh, keep him safe and uh, use him as an instrument in thy hands. Brothers and sisters, <clears throat> we're involved in a great work in this latter day. It's hard. Life is difficult. There are people who are struggling, who are wrestling with things, who are messing up, but we have a God in heaven who loves us, who didn't send his Son into the world to condemn us. He sent his Son into the world to save us, and if we'll just repent, and if we'll keep trusting and having faith in him, he will forgive us, and he will cleanse us, and he will cleanse our loved ones who are struggling, and it may take years, it may take decades, it might not happen until the next life, but the Lord loves you, and he loves us, and he's going to work with us, and he's going to honor agency, I get that, but he'll put us in situations where we can finally have our hearts softened and opened to come back to him. Now to come full circle. I'm Humpty Dumpty, and you're Humpty Dumpty. We sat on a wall. We've experienced a great fall, and all the world's horses and all the world's men can't put us together again, but the Lord can, and the Lord will. And that's my testimony. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.